thank you guys for joining us for worship this morning. Um, again, my name is Pastor Justin. Uh, Pastor Eric usually takes care of the preaching and teaching, but through Advent, he wanted to party hard last night and make me do it. So we had our Christmas party last night, and he was going to be tired. I think he planned it from the beginning, but whatever. Before you guys uh, get freaked out, yes, this is a tie. I am wearing a tie. Well, that's how you know it's a special day. It's a special season because we're dressed up. Uh, but we do thank you guys for being here through the Advent season as we look at the Advent week of peace. Now, we will be uh, discussing Luke chapter 1. If you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn to Luke uh, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 26 through 38 today. I'm going to read that passage, and then I'm going to pray, and we will jump right in head first. So look with me on Luke chapter 1, verses 26. It says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man who was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is this the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And join me in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning uh, thanking you for another opportunity to gather and to look into your word and to see the story of how you came to this earth to save us. That God came down in the form of a baby named Jesus. And that we get to look at that, we get to explore uh, what that was like and how that brings us peace this morning. And I just pray that as I preach this morning that you would move me aside as I am just a sinful man and allow your spirit to speak directly to the, the hearers this morning. That you would open their hearts, open their minds, open their ears to hear what you have to say, not what I have to say. But that you would be in this place guiding everyone, listening, speaking, or doing anything in this place. That you would be with them, you would guide them, and you would be here with us. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this time, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, I've lived here in Bowling Green for about 15 years, so it's about half my life. Don't do the math. I'm old. I consider this to be home. When I say I'm going home, I'm going to Bowling Green. I'm not going anywhere else. This is home. However, I've realized that when people say, are you from Bowling Green, they mean, did you go to high school in Bowling Green, which I did not, so I have to say, no, I'm not from Bowling Green. I'm from another place. I've noticed a lot of people come to Bowling Green and stay, whether it be for Western, that's most of it, but Western jobs, anything. Bowling Green seems to keep you here. You get here, you like it. I love Bowling Green. I don't plan on leaving anytime soon, but this is home. However, I am from a different city, so by an actual show of hands this morning, because there won't be any, but by an actual show of hands, if I didn't give you a map or a GPS or any form of directional things, whatever that may be, 
compass, sundial, whatever, in a car, could you drive, raise your hand if you could drive to Nebo, Kentucky, right now, from here to Nebo? Nobody. I don't, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I doubt anybody's even heard of Nebo, Kentucky, except for the few people I've taken there, and they've regretted it ever since. But that is from where I'm, that is technically where I'm from. I'm from Nebo, Kentucky. It's a quaint little town with no stoplight, no post office, no people, really. It's about the size of this room. But uh, I know you're all wondering why I'm bringing that up, and I will tell you in a few moments. But quickly, if you remember last week, we discussed that God had been seemingly silent for 400 years. So the Old Testament ended, the book of Malachi. He was the last prophet that we see uh, in the Old Testament. And then 400 years have passed. Now, I'm not saying all those people went to hell. I'm not saying God wasn't present in those times or anything like that. But nothing was written down from the prophets. I'm sure there were people still praying, praising God, and being saved in those times. That's not what we're saying. But he was not speaking through anyone. He wasn't telling anyone, hey, you're a prophet. Go tell my people this, that, or the other. And then 400 years of silence passed. And just for reference sake for 400 years, that is from this day, if you look back, that's 151 years before the Declaration of Independence was signed. So from here, that's how long God was silent. I'm sure these people were growing impatient waiting for this Messiah, waiting for these prophecies that were spoken in the Old Testament to come to fruition. So then we see after 400 years of silence, we saw last week that God sent an angel named Gabriel to Zechariah to tell him that his wife, who had been barren for years upon years, they had been praying for a child, begging God for a child, no child was given, that God came down after 400 years of silence and told Zechariah that even in your old age, even though your wife has been called barren, you will conceive a son. Now, we see that same angel this week come down, if that wasn't crazy enough, come down and tell a different story. And the reason I brought up Nebo is because he was sent, if we see in verses 26 and 27, to Galilee, and specifically to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Call that Nebo. It's the same thing, okay? He was sent to Nazareth, and all of the people were probably like, really? 400 years? This is where you show up? This was completely unexpected. Nazareth is such a small town and no one knows anything about it that it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's no, not mentioned anywhere except a few places in the New Testament and even extra-biblically if there's no real reference to it. You can't find Nazareth anywhere. So much so that if you look in John 1, 45 and 46, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, so they're looking for this Messiah, and Philip thinks he's found him, which he had. But we have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael looked at him, and he said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. That's probably what you guys are thinking about Nebo right now as I preach. Could anything good come out of Nebo? But this is not a rousing endorsement of Nazareth. This isn't, woohoo, Jesus has showed up in Nazareth? That's awesome. That, that's where I was expecting him to show up. No, no, no. He says, are you, are you sure? Let's go look. We've got to go see this with our own eyes. And that's one of Jesus' future disciples. That's one of the people that will plant the, the early church. That is why we are here now is because that church got planted. That is one of his disciples. Not exactly the arousing endorsement we see here. Needless to say, it was a bit unexpected that God sent his angel to Nazareth, sent his angel to this place and to these people. However, if we look throughout Scripture, that seems to be God's M.O. His M.O. seems to be doing what is expected in an unexpected way. 
So he's doing it differently than we expect. He's doing it differently than we want sometimes. He's doing it differently than we would do it ourselves. If we chose this, if we were making a movie, you don't send Jesus to Nazareth. You send him to Jerusalem or Rome or somewhere huge where everyone will know that it's coming. Everyone will know he's been born. And yet we see God again doing the unexpected and showing up in this small little town to unexpecting people. Now let's move on. It goes on to say that the angel was coming to see a virgin named Mary. We will look at her, obviously, in a moment. But it says something peculiar here. If you read in verse 27, it says uh, that the angel was coming to Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man who, named Joseph of the house of David. So it specifically introduces us to Joseph here, and it specifically tells us that he is of the house of David. So if you're reading along and you understand she is a virgin, you understand Joseph doesn't have anything to do with this story as of yet, right? It's other than he is the fiancé. So you wonder why the specificity here? Why do they mention where he's from or who the household he is from? And it's because of these Old Testament prophecies that we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures that, that Nathaniel was telling Philip, hey, the, the Messiah is coming, the one we have heard about, the one the law of Moses told us about. So those are being fulfilled here. And we see in Psalm 89, 3 and 4, it says, you have said... I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So God is specifically telling David here, look, you will be king forever. You and your lineage, you and all the generations that come after you will be king enthroned forever. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that Nathan is told to go tell David what God has said. So Nathan the prophet is told to go report to David that God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Speaking of David, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, this has been a promise since before 400 years. This has been a promise from long, long ago. Even before the years of silence, God was telling David, someone is coming. Someone who is going to fulfill these prophecies and give you your throne forever. You are going to die. David is not alive any longer. He is dead in this very moment we're reading here. And yet, God is still fulfilling the promise he made to David to keep his throne established forever. That is why they mention Joseph is of the house of David. But you see, God is keeping his promises again here with Joseph and with Jesus in a completely different way. If you look back to how David established his throne, it wasn't like this, was it? It wasn't, oh, night divine. It was war. It was political upheavals. His sons tried to kill him. Saul loved him and then hated him and then loved him and then hated him and tried to kill him numerous times. This is not peaceful time that David is gaining the throne. And yet we look here in the Advent week of peace and we see very calm, coming to an unexpected place, to unexpecting people. This isn't war. This isn't political upheaval. This is completely different than the people would have known, hey, I'm going to establish your throne. And we see even in verses 32 and 33 here some of the exact same language. The angel makes clear that Jesus is fulfilling those prophecies. So this isn't we're reading into the text and going, oh, this is... The angel specifically says in verse 32 and 33, He will be great, talking of Jesus, 
and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there shall be no end. So we see the same language here. The angel is specifically saying, look, you've heard the prophecies. This is the fulfillment of those prophecies. There is no doubt here. There is no doubt about what the angel is telling her. So, this is, that's Joseph. That is Jesus' lineage. That is, Jesus is now of the house of David because Joseph is of the house of David. Then we see Mary. He was betrothed to a, a young girl named Mary. She is described here as a virgin. Now, I'm not going to go into the definition of what that means today because there are children in here. But I think we all know what that means, okay? She is a virgin. She is betrothed to a man. That, there's a reason why they mention that she is engaged. That's the modern word for it. She's engaged to Joseph. There's a reason why they mention that. That is, there's a way that we can basically guarantee that this is true other than just believing it, okay? Other than just saying, well, I take it on faith that she was a virgin. She was engaged to a man. Now, culture has changed, in case y'all hadn't noticed by watching TV. Um, back then, if you were engaged to be married and you were found to be a virgin, are found not to be a virgin, you could be stoned. Now, usually that meant you were caught in the act, but the woman could therefore be stoned to death, I don't, killed. If later on it was found that she wasn't a virgin, not in the act, but through other means, the marriage could be completely dissolved. It could just be, well, I didn't marry her then. If she's not a virgin, I didn't marry her. Nowadays, white dress, pink dress, married, unmarried, no dress at all at your wedding, whatever, that doesn't say anything about your sexual past. It doesn't say whether you're a virgin or not. I would like to think that everybody is, but I just know that that's not true. Here, it is true. Mary isn't brave enough to break those laws as a teenage girl. And I do want you to understand that believing that Mary was a virgin here at Mission Church is a completely closed-handed issue. This isn't, we talk about open-handed and closed-handed issues. We talk about, well, if you think we should do communion every week and we don't, or if you think we shouldn't do it every week and we do, that's completely open-handed. That's something we can discuss. That is something we can change if we need to or whatever. That's just one example. This isn't. This is completely closed-handed. We will fight over this. This is the gospel of Jesus. If Mary wasn't a virgin, Jesus wasn't Jesus. And I, I know that's sometimes hard to hear for people because some people just say, well, does it really matter? I mean, as long as he was born and came and lived a sinless life, to us here at Mission Church, it does. She was, she was a virgin. First of all, and maybe most importantly, it says that she was a virgin in the Word of God. And we believe that the Word of God is true in all of its commas, periods, exclamation points, maps, everything. The Word of God is the Word of God, okay? So that's, that's one. But secondly, it was also necessary for the divinity of Jesus. His birth must be miraculous in ways that others are not. My daughter is actually wiggling around right there. I saw her born. It's a miracle when any baby is born, okay? What I saw in there, that that came from that experience, Trust me, it's miraculous. But Jesus' birth was miraculous in a way that she was not. It was miraculous in a way that no child that has ever been born before or after was not. And that is absolutely necessary. God himself must be Jesus' father. And the virgin birth is the way that we see that be the case. Also, I don't want to step on anyone's Catholic toes in here. I don't know if we have any of the 
Catholic brothers and sisters in here, or that used to be, or any of those things. But there is no indication whatsoever that Mary was perfect in this moment, that she had not sinned. There's no indication that she was sinless when the angel came to her. The Bible tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Mary is part of all, so therefore, she sinned. I'm sorry about that. There's also less indication that Mary was celibate for the rest of her life and was a virgin forever. Jesus had brothers, and I don't want to go again into the science, but we know where they came from, okay? That's Mary. But imagine what she's going through in this moment. What must have been going through Mary's mind when the angel told her she was going to have a baby? She would have been well aware of the consequences of virgins breaking their oath of virginity. You see, being engaged was as binding as marriage. It, it became consummated upon marriage, but it was, if you say, I'm going to marry that person, it was as binding as if you were already married. So you start acting as if you were married. Mary would have understood the laws saying, if I break this covenant, that some bad things might happen to me. But imagine, they may not have had the same kind of science we do back then, but becoming pregnant is one sure sign you're not a virgin, right? So she, it's going to be hard to explain this away. She is probably terrified in this moment. There's, there's no way that she could not be scared in this moment. If she believes what the angel was saying, if she believes that she truly is going to become pregnant, there is, there's literally no way. It doesn't say here that she was terrified of, of the message. There's just no way she couldn't have been because she would have known the consequences. And we mentioned earlier that we are in the Advent week of peace. This message is not peaceful to Mary. This message would not have instilled, oh, a calm sense of peace coming over Mary. She knows what could happen. She knows that Joseph may decide, I'm not going to marry this woman. She knows that the city may come and drag her from her home and stone her to death. She's not in a place of peace. Then we see in verse 34, one of the funniest verses of Scripture in all of Scripture. It says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? I want you to keep in mind, Mary is fully aware she's speaking to an angel of God here, okay? She knows. It says she was kind of terrified of him or scared of him when he came in. So she knows when he says, I'm an angel of God, that she is speaking to an angel. He gives her some news, and then she goes, I don't know if you know how that works. But I haven't done how that works, so I don't think you've got the right place. Gabe, Gabe, come on. It's, I, don't think, I don't think you got the right address here. She's talking to an angel. She's trying to give an angel a science lesson of how babies are born. And I'm sure, I wish I could have seen Gabriel's face in that moment, because I'm sure he was like, uh, I know. Anyway, so Gabe goes on, Gabe, we're going to call him that. Gabe goes on to assure her, that she will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that the baby she will have will be called the Son of God. So let's recap really quick. God seemingly doesn't say anything for 400 years. Then he gets back to speaking and the first thing that he says to an 80-something-year-old man is, hey, I know your wife, you've been begging for a kid, she hasn't had one for this long, but guess what? Now's the time. I'm going to give her a kid, I'm going to give you a kid. So he shows up and he says that first. Now that at least makes a little bit of sense, right? I know Zechariah was a little bit doubtful. He, he gets muted for like a few months because of, because of his doubt, which Mary was, showed kind of doubt, and she didn't get punished that way anyway. But 
At least it didn't seem completely crazy. It seems as though Zechariah and Elizabeth were still engaging in the science lesson that Mary was trying to give to the angel, right? She's still, they're still actively trying to have a kid. Now, is it a little crazy? Yes, because she's old. But it's not completely absurd that she would have a baby. John the Baptist's birth was miraculous, but we have at least seen this before. We, we just read about Abraham and Sarah. They were given a child very late in life. This isn't completely unprecedented. We have seen old people have babies in the Bible. But then, after 400 years of silence, the very next thing God does after 400 years is tell an unmarried virgin teenager, you're going to have a baby too. He's just giving them out to everybody, I guess. Baby here, baby there. But he tells a virgin that she is going to have it. This makes even less sense. This is completely absurd. We have no cases of this before. We obviously have no cases of this afterward. Okay, so after 400 years, it may seem that God has completely lost his mind. However, the thing is, and the thing that gets me every time I read this, is they were expecting a Messiah. They were, the prophecies were told. I mean, the angel re just reminds Mary of the prophecies. She, he doesn't say, remember this prophecy and go through the list. He just says the prophecies of David are going to be fulfilled. So they were all expecting God to come and change the world. He was, they were expecting him to do something completely different. And yet, both times, they meet with doubt. John the Baptist was prophesied as well, and Zechariah doubts. Jesus was prophesied, and Mary seems to doubt. And here's the thing. It seems that we react in the same way. Maybe not with Jesus' birth, of course. But it seems that we as finite humans, even when we expect God to move, for some reason we're still surprised when he actually does. We're praying to God to do something, and then he does it, and we're like, whoa, hey, we're surprised. Or we doubt, maybe this isn't from God, maybe this is something else. We react in the same way Zechariah did. We react in the same way Mary did. Not all the time. I'm not saying that's 100% true every single time. But a lot of the time, even when we expect God to do something, we're surprised when he actually does it. And I wonder if that's, or I know it's because... He acts in ways we don't expect. He acts in ways that we wouldn't do ourselves. He acts in ways that maybe we're not even hoping for. There's no way Mary was like, man, I hope I can get pregnant before I actually do what gets me pregnant because that'll, be, that'll go over great. There's no way that's how she was expecting the Messiah to come. To her, anyway. See, it doesn't seem that Mary was doubting that a Messiah would come. It seems she's doubting that it would come through her and through these means. That seems to be where her doubt is. But many times, he acts in ways that we don't expect, and we react in the same way. He acts in ways that seemingly do not produce peace, even though he has promised us peace. Hard times, suffering, persecution, ridicule, ostracism, government coming down on us, whatever it may be, that doesn't seem peaceful to us. That doesn't seem that he's keeping his promises, and yet he is keeping them just in a way that we don't expect or want. But this is how Jesus is bringing peace, not only to Mary, but to the whole world. You see, what so sometimes we forget um, when we read this, because it doesn't go into too much detail later in Scripture or, or a lot of other places in Scripture, we forget Mary and Joseph had to continue to be parents here. You see, Mary's responsibility as Jesus' mother didn't end at the nativity scene. 
All right, here he is. We, we gave birth here. We're done. They still had to be parents. They still had years worth of worry, stress, concern. They lost Jesus at one point. I'm sure that wasn't a peaceful moment. They had no idea where he was. They had to backtrack a couple days' journey to get him. Minus the sin part, he's pretty much just like our kids. We care and love for our kids. We worry about our kids. I'm learning that that apparently never (laughs) ends. And then we see that culminate at the cross when Mary is looking upon her son. This isn't just some guy to Mary. This is her baby boy hanging on a bloody, used, bloody cross, beaten and suffocating to death in front of everyone, and she can do nothing. We forget sometimes that she has to go through that. We forget that, and maybe she doesn't know all of that in that moment. Maybe she does. But she does know that she's still got to parent this boy. Put yourself in her shoes. You're being told you're pregnant in a place that may kill you if you show up pregnant. And you know you didn't do it. It's like going to jail for something you know you did not do. That is not a peaceful moment. If you get sentenced to the rest of your life in prison and you didn't do it and you know for a fact you weren't even there, there's no peace in that moment. Earthly peace, anyway. There's no peace in this moment for Mary. And Joseph, he has to be a parent. He has to be a father. Even though it doesn't go into it like... In Matthew, I mean, Joseph considers leaving Mary when he hears the news, and the the angel at least reassures him, hey, um, it's it's true, she didn't cheat on you, type thing. But he has to be a parent. He has to be a father to a little boy that can (laughs) say, you're not my daddy, God is, and he's right. Like, that's not, it's not, I'm not even meaning that necessarily as a joke. Like, he literally can say that, and Joseph has to go, yeah, but, well, I, yeah, I guess you're right. But he has to do that. He has to go through those moments. He has to adopt Jesus into his family. How could that possibly be peaceful for Joseph? How could that possibly bring him peace to know, so now I have to raise what you're saying is the Son of God. I had nothing to do with bringing him into the world, and yet I'm going, and we know he is going to be considered Jesus' father because it specifically says that Joseph was the house of David, and that is how the prophecies were fulfilled. So we know that Joseph is daddy. There's no way that was peaceful in that moment. But you see, this again should reorient our thinking. Because we are thinking of peace as earthly peace. We are thinking of peace as no war, or I'm not fighting with my wife or my brothers and sisters or my mom and dad or any of those things. We think of peace that way, but that's not what Jesus has promised, is it? Look at John 14, 27. You don't have to turn there. But John 14, 27, we read it earlier, actually. It says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I want you to understand that this was not a peace-giving moment for Mary or Joseph, but specifically in this text, Mary. This is not how Mary would have chosen it for herself. But let's look at verse 38. Let's see how she reacts. It says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Where does Mary arrive? Where does she land? 
when all is said and done, when however long this conversation was, we don't know if it was the length of how long we're reading it or if it went on longer and Mary had more questions. We don't know for sure. But however long it was, by the end of it, Mary came to a place of peace. Through all the fear, through all the terror, through all the what's going to happen, how am I going to do this, I'm a teenager, uh, I'm, I'm not even married yet, all of the things that went through her head, and she arrives at, let it be according to your word, for I am the servant of the Lord. Peace not as the world gives, peace not as Mary would have chosen, peace not as Mary was expecting, and yet peace in knowing that God is God. God is in control, and even when we don't know what's going on, and we have questions like Mary had, how's this going to be? I'm a virgin. She had questions. We have questions. This is what we must arrive at. We must arrive at peace. Her response was peaceful submission to God the Father. So I ask of you this morning, and I ask of myself this morning, because I am not immune to this. I am not immune to feeling in unrest or not at peace. Pastor Eric is not immune to that. No pastor you've ever met is immune to that. We all go through these moments where we have questions and doubts and wonder what God is up to. But we have to, like Mary, arrive at peace. We have to respond righteously to God's seemingly absurd promises. See, we, we see very quickly that Mary turns from doubt and unrest to believe in peace. So how do we do that? How do we respond righteously to scriptures like Romans 8.28 where it says all things will work together for our good and God's glory if we love him. Some of you in here today cannot wrap your mind around that. You cannot wrap your mind around what's going on in my life is actually for my good and for God's glory. Some of you may have a loved one that just died. Some of you may have a child with special needs. Some of you may have a child that's 1,500 miles away and you can't get him home. Some of you may have a child that has gone astray. And you don't know why. You raised him right, her right. You told them all of the things that they need to know. You see in Scripture it says if you raise up a child in the way of the Lord and when they are older they will not depart from it. And yet you see they're departing from it. And you don't know what to do. You're in a marriage that's terrible. Your, your kids don't love you or respect you or speak to you. You may have come in here this morning and asked yourself, is this all worth it? And you may be so far from peace that you have ceased to believe that it even exists. And you are wondering, how can this be true? How can God give me peace? How can all things work together for my good and for His glory? Or we read scriptures like Philippians 1.6, where it says, That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Is that so? Because some of you are having a hard time believing that this morning. Some of you think that you have been saved by God, but you have to sanctify yourself through your own actions and through your own hard work and through your own sweat, blood, sweat, and tears. That sanctification is the work that you do. God saves you. You sanctify yourself. That God has seemingly left you alone. You don't feel Him anymore. You don't experience Him the same way as on the day of your salvation or the day of your baptism. When you pray, you don't feel like you're praying to anyone. He isn't answering your prayers the way you want Him to, even though He is, in fact, answering them. And he's not changing you in the ways that you want him to change you. You're begging him to change you, to bring your faith more to the, the cream to the top, as they say. And he's, he's seemingly not doing that. And all you can wonder, is this really what God means by peace? Because I am tired, I am stressed out from trying so hard. I'm trying to impress people, I'm trying to impress God to earn this salvation or to earn his mercy or to earn his grace. And it's just seemingly not working out. 
Or what about 1 Corinthians 10, 13? It says, No temptation will overtake you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but will always provide a way of escape. For some of you this morning, that is impossible to believe. You came in here this morning being completely ashamed of what you did last night. Some of you may have come in here this morning completely ashamed of what you did earlier this morning or what you're thinking right now. Some of you are continually struggling with the same sin issue over and over and over again, and you're begging God, take this desire from me. I don't want to live this way. Please change me. God is saying, you're saying that I can't be tempted beyond what I can bear, and yet I keep falling into the same pit. I keep doing these things. Where is this peace that you have promised? You are not giving me this peace. You are not working this all out for my good. You are not bringing this to completion. You are not giving me a way out. And first, to answer that question, how you arrive at peace in these moments, because we all have them. When you, how you arrive at peace, first, I want you to look back at the promises in Scripture. A Messiah will come. Elizabeth, you will have a baby. Mary, you are pregnant. You are going to have a baby, even though you are a virgin. These are absurd promises. They make no sense in an earthly, in an earthly way. We don't look at this and go, yeah, totally, I get it. In our earthly flesh, we look at this and say, Those, that makes no sense, how you're going to do that, or why you're going to do that. And yet God kept those promises. Even when the people he was promising them to doubted him, even when Zechariah and Mary, who had been praying for these things, even when they doubted him, he kept his promises. God is a God of keeping promises. And I can guarantee you, it doesn't matter where on that spectrum you fall of doubt or unbelief. You have never experienced unbelief like Joseph did when Mary sat him down and said, Honey, we're pregnant. There's no way you have that kind of unbelief. And she says, I didn't cheat on you, though. It's the Holy Spirit. There's, there's literally no way you can fathom that kind of doubt. Because Joseph knew he had no part in that. And that has never happened before and never happened since. And yet, they both arrived at peace. God gave them peace, and he delivered on his promise. So it's not just peace, and then he doesn't do anything. He keeps his promises, and then he promises to us peace as he will give, eternal peace. It may not look like you want it to look in this lifetime. You may not really get any of it in this lifetime as far as the earthly peace goes. But you can have peace knowing that God is God, and that God, when he promises something, he is going to keep his promise. You see, The angel tells of this promise and says, Mary, you're going to have a baby, and he will be the son of God. And this is the dividing line of history still to this day. You either join Mary and you believe that Jesus was, in fact, the son of God. You believe in your heart that he came to this earth through a virgin, lived a sinless life in your place, and in your your place went to the cross and took the, the penalty of sin that you deserved, that he bought and paid for your redemption through a bloody cross while he died there in your place. And that because of his death, burial, and resurrection, you place your trust in him that he is exactly who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, that he is the Messiah. You believe, just like a young teenage girl did a couple thousand years ago, or you don't. That's the dividing line. There is no middle ground. There is no real other option. Well, Jesus was a pretty good guy. 
that means you don't. So you either believe that or you don't. And I pray that everyone in here does believe that. But those are your options. Those are the dividing lines of faith, salvation, and eternal peace. But if you do not believe that Jesus was born exactly the way God said he would, that he lived a sinless life, that he came to purchase your salvation, then you're on the other side of the line. So I want you to ask this morning, if you are a believer in Christ, if you are not a believer in Christ, if you are not on the side of the line that believes that Jesus did all of these things, please come talk to us before you leave. We want to tell you more about this Jesus and the peace that he brings. But if you are on the side of belief and you do believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he purchased your salvation, but you're completely in unrest right now, you don't have peace in your life, I want you to ask yourself, do I truly believe that God loves me? Not some future version of me, not if I act right, not if I earn it, not something I'm hoping to attain, but right here, right now, who you are, dirty sinner, whatever it is that you're in, whatever it is that's not giving you peace, ask yourself, does God love me? Do you believe that God loves you for you? Not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is. Do you believe the promises in Romans 8.38 that says neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come can separate us from the love of God? Do you truly believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has purchased this love for you? Because that's the only way to get it. God's eternal peace was purchased at the cross. And if you don't believe what we just went over about Jesus, then that promise of peace is not for you. The promise of peace is for those who have believed in their hearts that Jesus came and died for their sins. And then we can believe that God truly does love us. He promises that he loves us. He loves us enough to discipline us. He loves us enough to let us go through suffering so we will lean more on him because he knows we can't handle it on our own. He loves us enough not to let us stay in our sin, but to deliver us from our sin. He loves us enough to send his precious baby boy, Jesus, to this earth knowing he is going to be brutally murdered so that he can heal us from our sin and give us peace and draw us unto himself. This is the peace that he offers that the world never can. The peace that you may be seeking in your circumstances or in anything that's going on in your life, that's worldly peace. We want everyone to seek the peace of Jesus, the eternal peace of knowing that our destiny is secure. It may look really bad right now, and I may not know what's going on right now, but my destiny in eternity is secure because Jesus has secured it for me. See, people nowadays want objective proof for everything, right? Well, how do you know? How do you know that's true? And here's how we know. How do we know that God loves us? How do we know God keeps his promises? Jesus. How do we know, how do we have proof that God can bring us peace? Jesus. How do we have proof that God absolutely loves us today and not some better version that we can attain on our own? Jesus. This is why we celebrate his birth in this season. This is why we celebrate Advent and his coming to the world because we know the rest of the story. We know that this is 
the utmost showing of God's love for us in sending His baby boy, the promised one, the one who reveals God's love for us, the one who reveals the prophecies are true, the one that reveals that God keeps His promises. This is why we look forward to Christmas. So may we all be captivated this morning. May we look to Jesus for our love. May we look to Jesus as our promised Savior. May we look to Jesus as our peace. Let's pray. Father, we, we all in here come to you sinners. We all come in here with our own baggage. And right now, I just pray we lay that at your feet. I pray that we give that fully to you, that we would stop worrying and stressing about being good enough, and that we would rest in the peace that you give, that you are the ones that will indwell us and sanctify us, that you will carry us on away from sin, that we would look to you each and every day, whether it be in your word or through prayer or through having the gospel preached to us daily by someone in our church community or in our church family. I just pray that we are reminded every day of this Advent season that you are our peace, that you were the delivered promise, that you were the child of promise, and that you have saved us, that you are sanctifying us, that you are changing us and transforming our lives to look more and more like you. And no matter what our particular circumstances look like, may we remember that you have also promised us peace. Not peace as the world would give, but peace that only you can provide. Not peace in the absence of trouble, but in the presence of Christ. We love you, Jesus. We praise your name. We worship you in this place because you are that baby, because you are the promised one, that you came to this earth and you died in our place after living a perfect life that we could not live, and that you took our penalty, took our punishment, not to cover our sins, but to erase them altogether. Because they have been punished in you. I just pray we, we rest in that this morning. That we would find peace in that. Even if we can't find peace anywhere else, that we would find peace in knowing that this morning. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Father, for sending him to us. And I just pray that you are truly worshipped in this place as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.